You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. Maybe you've seen the hit TV show, The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, or maybe you haven't. Either way, such a pleasure to have on Jen Shahade, chess master. She was twice the U.S. Women's Champion. She was a chess master at the age of 15. She was a prodigy. She wrote books on chess. She's also a professional poker player and a, a commentator for both chess and poker. Pleasure to have her on the podcast to talk about the Queen's Gambit, chess, writing, poker, and all sorts of fun things. So, Jen, I wanted to introduce you to the audience. You're uh, a chess master. I, did, I just realized you were a chess master at the age of 15. I know. It's kind of surprising because I was overrated when I became a chess master. I, I, I'm what? sure you weren't overrated, but, but go ahead. Well, I won it when I was 15. I played in something called the Insanity Tournament, which was a tournament where you had to play chess all night. And I was like 15 and... I was playing against all these like, you know, mostly older people who like, this was like more of a difficult for them. Like I'm a, I'm a teenager, like 3 a.m. is my time. Right. So I like won all my games and I went from like 21.30 to 22.02. And I, I, as soon as I had to play in a regular tournament in the normal hours of the day, I like dropped down. <laughs> but hey. still, you were probably one of the, I mean, what, how old was Bobby Fischer when he became a chess master? He was 15, right? Um, that was, he was a grandmaster at 15, but I was still oh. one of the younger masters because at that time there weren't as many like, you know, really, really young masters. It, it was still like somewhat cool to have your master rating at 15. Yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> so, and then you were, you were a U.S. Women's Champion at, in 2002 and 2004. So you were like 22 years old when you became the U.S. Women's Champion. Yeah, yeah, 21 actually. 21, so... Was that, like who was playing in that? Was Irina Crush playing in that? She was playing when when I won the second one. When I won mm. the first one, I, I I can't remember why she didn't play because it was a nice prize fund. 
Um, she must have had some kind of conflict. But actually, it was the first year that men and women played in the same section. So I was playing against grandmasters for most of the event. Oh, I see. So whoever the top-ranked woman was that year became the U.S. Women's Champion? Exactly, exactly. Was that like a, a highlight of your life, winning that championship at the age of 21? Yes, definitely. It was definitely a highlight, yeah. Because I don't think I was so much expecting it. I was never, you know, all the big achievements I've had in my life, chess-wise, I was never the highest-ranked player. I was always like, you know, three or four on the list. And then, like, I had to play really well in order to become the champion. So I think that makes it sweeter. Like when you're the favorite and you win, like, you know, you kind of go in a little bit expecting you might. For me, I always had to really like, you know, dig deep. And your brother obviously is a, Greg Shahade is an international master. Your dad, Michael Shahade is a FIDE master. Obviously that's what got you into it, but it was like, was Greg kind of kicking you around and you finally said, oh, I'm gonna learn how to play chess and beat this guy or, or what happened? How'd you get, how'd you get involved? Not exactly like that. So what happened with my brother was that he's always been a great brother, but he and I have very different minds, even though like you wouldn't think that because we both are interested in a lot of the same things. I'm very creative and Greg has creative streak too, but I think he's a lot faster, like the way he thinks. He's very, very quick. Um, I am slower and I often get to good places, but it takes me longer so um, when we both started learning chess, he was just skyrocketed ahead of me. He's two years older. He became a master at 14. And when he was a master, I was like 1,400. Like I was really low rated for, you know, compared to 2,200. For those of you who don't know, the, the scale goes from kind of like eh, about 600 to 2,800 for like the best player in the world. So 2,200 is really good. Yeah, like the average player on the street like who knows the rules and can play games with their family. What, what rating would you say they are? Probably like around five to 800, right? Oh, five to 800. And so, and it's about 150 points as a standard deviation. So if you're a thousand and someone's 1150, the 1150 could beat the thousand two out of three times, roughly. Yeah. Although I think it's a little less reliable, lower ratings because yeah. your learning curve is so steep that if you spend like one night studying puzzles, like that could have flip-flopped, right? Yeah. But yeah, as you get stronger, it's much, the rating is much more reliable. So because I was like a lot slower, I was like, maybe chess isn't my thing. And so I, I, I kind of abandoned it for a couple of years. So a couple of years, we were 12. <laughs> and yeah. Then, and then what happened? 11, yeah. 11, 12, 13, something like that. Yeah. So then 13, 14, you get back into it. And a year later, you're, you're 2,200. So obviously there's some, some talent there, but you must've learned a lot. Did you learn a lot from Greg and, and your father? Oh yeah, definitely. A lot. And just like the approach, you know, my dad always taught me, you know, just have to study this tactics book and then study it again. Cause that was a little bit of a problem for me. I wasn't the quickest, but you can train your brain to be really quick when it comes to the patterns that matter in chess. Right. I think the thing is nobody's born a good chess player. And so it's all about training yourself to be a better version of yourself. And for some people, that means different things. For some people, their brain works too fast and they need to slow down. Some people are overconfident and they need to, again, slow down and make sure that they're deliberating. And some people are underconfident, they're too slow. But wherever you are, it's all about like trying to perfect it and become a better chess player, which isn't natural. You know, it's interesting. Like when I first started playing, I got really obsessed with openings. But now, you know, many, many years later, if all you did was study tactics, I think that's good enough to beat everybody you know, unless you're playing like, you know, grandmasters and stuff. Agreed, agreed. Tactics and puzzles, and it's so fun. And there's such a high learning curve, which I think is just like exciting. It's like lifting weights at the gym, you know? You see all these other people like running on the treadmill, getting nowhere, and you're like sitting there like lifting and you're like really getting stronger. I'm sorry. Yeah, to, that, to hasn't, that hasn't happened to me, but... Uh, I, I'm not a cardio hater. I just, you know, <laughs> but, it felt like a, a good analogy at the time. I don't, I don't like anything that happens in the gym. It's all bad. So <laughs> I just stick to sitting behind my computer. I don't even like playing chess on, on, in, in, with real people anymore. I just like sitting on, on playing online. Like, do you play... Do you ever play in, like, real... Well, now with COVID, maybe not. Yeah. But when was the last time you played, like face-to-face -face with somebody other than your well, family members. Yeah, and ages ago. I mean, at the St. Louis Chess Club, I'll play some pickup games with people sometimes when I'm waiting for something to happen. 
But um, yeah, I think it'd be more likely that I would use chess pieces and a real board to like look at tactics or problems because that's really fun. That is a beautiful exercise. Yeah, I miss, I should, I should study more with a real board. Like I tend to not study games anymore, which is probably not so good. Like I tend to just do too much tactics. And I know uh, Ben Johnson on his uh, chess podcast, he just had a guy who said no more, you shouldn't do bullet chess. I probably do too much bullet. Oh, definitely. Probably. I mean, it's, I think it depends on the person though. Maybe for you, because you tend, you, it seems like you think and speak really quickly um, maybe bullet is like a nice match and it feels good. But I think for a lot of people, it's like they're trying to think more quickly about chess and it's natural for them. And it just leaves you feeling like kind of scrambled afterwards, like not good. I'm curious what you said earlier about how nobody's born a good chess player. Like when I, if you interview some, like you ever, you ever watch, um, this might've been too long ago, but like Jorge Zamora, when he was 11 years old, that guy was like beating grandmasters and his blitz was just like when he would analyze a game. Cause I, I was roommates with Elias Zamora for a while, his older brother and Jorge would analyze this game. It was like, he was so far ahead of us. He must've been born with something. I always debate this talent versus skill thing. Well, yeah, he is this Jorge Zamora or um, now Zamora has been is like, gotta be one of the most talented players ever. I mean, I think a lot of people say that like, you're not the only one. He was considered a super talent because, like, the things he saw in Blitz were incredible. But even Jorge, like, it requires, like, training to kind of bring out that talent. It's not like he just, like, looks at a chessboard and is like, oh, yeah, I know what to do here. You, you do need to, like, kind of, like, connect. Yeah, because ultimately he, I guess, I don't want to say he fizzled out. I don't really know the story. But ultimately he didn't become, like, a top professional when he probably could have been. Probably with that type of talent. I mean, but then there's all these mental game issues. And, you know, about the bullet chess, I'm just curious, how do you feel after? Because I think that matters a lot. Like, do you feel scrambled and kind of like unpleasant or do you feel good after you play like a series of bullet games? No, I feel unpleasant because yeah. I, feel, I feel like it's, it's like eating junk food or uh -huh. watching like really bad TV. It's like I was just entertained, but I got no value out of it at all. Yeah. Whereas yeah. like if I play like, let's say even three or five minutes with an increment, there's an extra few seconds your brain can kick in and really dive into a position a little bit. Not, not so much like a tournament game, but enough that it's, you're actually thinking about the position instead of just, you know, blitzing out the fastest move. Yeah. I have a theory about blitz and especially very quick games that it doesn't feel good if you're not improving. So you know, if you're playing a series of bullet games, game, in, you know, that finishes in two minutes or three or four minutes, and you're actually looking at all the openings and you're studying puzzles in between and end games, and your rating's going up and you're feeling that you're getting better and you're beating better people, then that actually is a really good feeling. But if you're just kind of like exercising at the same level, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. It's just kind of like a way to pass time. I think that that can be like less pleasurable. Well, I think that's like learning in general, like learning is pleasurable or mastering anything is pleasurable. And just you, like, you probably know a lot of people who for 10 years, 20 years, they stay at the same level, even though they're playing all the time, they'd like to get better. They just don't study. They don't know how to learn. And I always get frustrated when I see people who obviously want to get better, but they don't take the basic steps to learn, like studying games or studying tactics or whatever. Although now I'm at a point where I just like to play for enjoyment I probably should break out a chess book and study, get back to normal. Yeah, I don't know. It depends. I feel like if people are enjoying chess for what it is and they don't really have any desire to get better, then that's okay. I think we should be accepting of that too. Chess is like a language, you know? Like there's a lot of people who just, you know, want to play it. But I think for the most part, people do want to get better. That is probably the dominant type in chess for sure. And so then during this whole time, you then wrote the book, uh, Chess Bitch, which was your, your autobiography slash memoir about your experiences in chess. And then you wrote the excellent book. Well, both books were excellent, but then you wrote uh, Play Like a Girl, which was you analyze a bunch of games by women and you very graciously signed it and, and signed it for my daughters and sent it to me, which I appreciate. And then of course you became a professional poker player. 
Yeah, I just like, I guess I like trying new things. I mean, I know you love doing a lot of new things. I like trying new things because I feel like you, you first, you learn new things about yourself and you learn, you also get to meet a lot of new people, particularly with poker. With writing, I just felt like, beyond besides chess, it was like the one time in my life that I felt this like glorious, like flow experience where everything else in my life disappeared. Whereas when I, with chess, in order to get that feeling, I needed to like go to a tournament. Whereas like with writing, I could like just sit down on my computer and get that feeling. That, that was really cool. And it's harder to get that feeling from chess when I like I'm sitting at my computer because the games are so quick, like you say. But um, with writing, I felt that. And I, I was like kind of intoxicated by that immediately. So when I wrote, when I wrote papers in college, I started to realize that about myself. And that made me really want to write a book about women in chess because there hadn't really been any. And so chess bitch it was. Yeah, I don't know of any, I mean, there's books about like different chess players. I'm, I'm assuming there's a book about Vera Menchik somewhere, you know, yeah. the first, which, which she's sort of the first woman's world champion, right? Um, yeah, or, and she or, won it so many times and she was so dominant, so much better than every other um, female of the time. And it was just, it's just an incredible story indeed, Vera Menchik. And then, and then there's the Polgar sisters, which is like a, oh, the Polgar sisters is almost like a story made for a movie as well. Like three sisters who become like the, the dominant chess players in the world for, for women and, and for men too. They were great. Oh yeah. Great story. I mean, the thing is like a screenwriter would have to try to figure out what angle to take and where to create um, conflict. Cause there's so many different options when you're dealing with like three people and the whole family and. Yeah, but I, I, there is, there's a lot of possibilities there because there's, uh, you know, three daughters and all of them became brilliant chess players and particularly the youngest, Judith, who coincidentally has this fiery red hair, kind of similar to Beth Harmon in The Queen's Gambit. And she became one of the top 10 players in the world. So a, a really inspiring story in that before, the, before Judith, people questioned whether it was even possible for a woman to get that good. I mean, their parents didn't play, right? Laszlo and I don't know their mom's name. Clara. Yes, they they didn't play. And they just wanted, it was almost like an experiment where they wanted to see if they could just raise these kids from birth and see if they could become great chess players. And they did. And, And I think they pretty much just focused on tactics as well. But there's a question. I wonder if they were talented and didn't know it or it was just all from Laszlo's training. I think they are, you know, I think there must be stories of, you know, people who tried that and it didn't work. So I think that they were also talented. Yeah. I see. Of course, it's like a survivorship bias. Like we hear about the Polgars a lot because Laszlo was so successful because his methods combined with their kind of like innate ability. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think no matter no matter what, like his methods seemed like they were very, very good. So probably anybody would become a great chess player, but would they become Judith Polgar? I mean, only one of them did, right? And a lot of stories have posited that like some of the hurdles based on sexism and some anti-Semitism um, were first like surmounted by Susan, who was the oldest. And that kind of paved the way, so it was a little easier for Judith, right? Uh, and and that does that does make sense. And also, some of the pedagogical techniques were further refined because Susan was like I think seven years older or eight years older than Judith, so significantly older, maybe sixty nine, I think, for Susan, and I think it was seventy six for Judith. Yeah. What do you think improved in the training? Um, probably just, you know, which tournaments to play, what openings to study first, just little things, you know, like little tweaks. One thing that I heard, which I always was fascinated by, especially now as I'm a mom of a four-year-old, was that when they taught Susan, they tried to teach her at like three or four. And the dad decided that that was a waste of time with Judith. And he started more like five. Hmm. You know, though, I heard that story, but I couldn't resist. I still started Bobby a little earlier, but I don't have any like, I don't have any grand ambitions chess-wise. I mean, I have grand ambitions for him as a human, but I don't plan to train him to be like, uh, you know, a GM from five. I just got so excited because like he saw chess pieces around the house that even at like two, I was like introducing him to them. And does he play? Um, he, you know, he does. He likes a lot of the apps on the 
on the iPad, like Magnus's Kingdom, which is like a genius app, by the way. It's this app where it's like kind of like a merge of like Legend of Zelda and chess. So you have to like win all these battles and your piece only moves through the world based on the chess movement. So if you're a knight, you have to like hop like a knight everywhere. Ah, that is smart. And so the kid has to really figure out like how the pieces move because there's all these obstacles. So, and this is a, an app that Magnus is behind or he lent his name to or? Yeah, something like that. It's part of his, I think it's part of his like big, you know, he's a big businessman now and he's got this huge like list of companies that he's a part owner in, the Magnus Group. And one of them is Play Magnus and then there's Chess24, which is this, uh, this chess site where all, a lot of the best tournaments in the world are hosted and Chessable, which is like a training site. I'm not paid by them for anything. Just, you know, I, there's a lot of great chess products out there. So I didn't know Magnus was such a wheeler and dealer. So, okay. Magnus oh, yeah. Yeah. Probably the, arguably the best world champion ever, but it's hard to say. I mean, Kasparov was, was world chess champion for 20 years before Magnus. And he, Magnus always seems sort, like sort of a, such a introverted type of guy. You don't think of him as a big business guy. Yeah, you know, I think he's really just incredibly intelligent in so many ways, not just chess. He seems like he's got a good business sense. And I think a lot of having a good business sense, if you're that successful, is knowing who to trust, right? So, you know, picking the right people to be on your team. And, and his dad, I think, has always been a major confidant and, you know, part of his team. And obviously, his dad's made some really good choices because it doesn't seem like Magnus has a lot of misstep when it comes to business. Seems like you, so he's mostly done like a lot of good decisions so far. Were you the announcer when uh, Magnus was playing Kajarkin in, or I don't know how to say his name, but in- Karyakin? Yeah, yeah, in, in New York City. Um, I was not. You know, they actually invited me. It would have been such an exciting opportunity because it was to work with Judah Polgar, but I was very, very pregnant. I think it was like the, ver- the, last, the, like, the last month of my pregnancy. So I had to, I had to, to opt uh-huh. out of that one. But- um, yeah, that that uh, that was, uh, you know, I, I visited though. I did visit. I remember um, it was pretty cool to have it in New York City. Yeah, it was in the South Street Seaport. And I, I just remember, uh, yeah, I guess it was uh, Judith was astonished when she saw the, the last move of the match was Magnus's Queen G6 sacrificing the queen. Gorgeous. And, yeah, Gorgeous. it was an amazing move. But uh, so what'd you think of the Queen's Gambit? Oh, I loved it. I thought it was great. It was beautifully done. It showed chess in a way. I think I really loved it particularly because I've always been interested in kind of like the creative and artistic elements of chess and the crossovers creatively and story. And so it just showed things that I think had never been shown before. And I liked how they just avoided a lot of the cliches that you normally see in chess films and chess TV, where so many of the you know, series show like the pieces as a symbol for the player they avoided that and they showed for Beth how like chess was this way for her to like see the world, um, to kind of like find herself, to kind of merge her extraordinarily outer beauty in the series with the inner beauty of thought, like, you know, perfect thought, which to me was quite interesting because I read the book recently because we had this, I organized this mad women's book club for US chess women and our first book was The Queen's Gambit. And I read the book. And in the book, Beth is, is supposed to be homely, which is a word I don't think people use very much now. I don't know why, it got, but apparently it means like unattractive. So she was unattractive in the book. When she played chess in the book, though, she glowed. So she kind of like became, it was like an elixir of beauty for her in the book. I thought that that must be like a challenge to kind of like have that conceit in the book and translate it to the screen because now you have... Anya Taylor-Joy, who is obviously like incredibly stunning. Like, how can you make her more beautiful? But they did it. They did it when they showed that kind of like climactic scene where she kind of like merges her like brain and her, her body. It, it was amazing. Yeah. And I thought, I thought the, the show was pretty accurate to the book, like beat by beat, mm-hmm. which, uh, which is not a common thing. Um, you know, uh, Walter Tevis, who wrote the book, he also wrote The Hustler and The Color of Money. So he's very good at these like competitive subcultures and bringing it out. And he was also a, a chess player. He was a class C rated chess player. Yeah. And the dialogue was just like, some of it was just lifted from the book. You know, what surprised me was how badly they all played. Um, but the Carol Kahn, 
Yeah. <laughs> All pawns and no hope. Like just some of their best lines were just lifted straight out of the book. I loved it. Yeah, and it did sort of seem very similar to the, I mean, I wasn't alive, but the U.S. chess culture in the 1950s, early 1960s, it, it felt like what I read about that, you know, U.S. chess history. Like the grandmasters were good players, but they weren't really at the highest level at that time in, in the world. Yeah, yeah, that, it, they did a really good job of conveying that. And then the the Soviet chess school and the warmth of the Soviets, which, you know, Gary Kasparov being a consultant on it, you know, gave a lot of advice on like how to portray them. And obviously also the chess moves themselves along with Bruce Pandolfini. So yeah, they did a really good job with it. One thing that I think a lot of other people have pointed out. So I, I, uh, I have like a lot of respect for some of the people who pointed this out. And I do agree in some ways. Um, Judith Polgar was one of them that the show underestimated the sexism that she would actually experience. And yeah, I, I think it's kind of funny from like a mathematical perspective also. It's like everybody she meets in the series is good. There's only one exception. There's like one bad person. That's like the uh, adoptive dad, right? Everybody else is like a good egg. And like what a wonderful world that would be if it's like 9.5 out of 10 people you meet are just going to be like wonderful and generous and kind to you. Well, I guess the, I don't know what you call it, the headmaster or the headmother of the uh, uh, foster home or adoptive orphanage, she wasn't so nice. You know, I have a, I have a different view on her, actually. Um, for, for any, this is very early. Um, I guess people who are watching this probably don't wonder about spoilers. But, you know, I thought that her concerns about Beth being alone with a janitor in the basement were completely- Yeah, I guess that's reasonable and-, and- when you put it that way. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, and you know, it kind of tied in because when Beth was allowed to go on that class trip to a high school, um, the headmaster was like, okay, but you need another woman to come with you. Right. Cause she, she was like worried about Beth's safety. It, it that was like yeah. the subtext to me, which is of course more important than anything else. Right. Yeah. And then I guess Jolene, uh, they became best friends, but, uh, when they were both, young, there was some tension. I mean, she stole her book, stole the right. chess, modern chess openings book. Yeah. I like that though. I thought that was a good way of like giving Jolene a little bit of her own character. Yeah. That, you know, she also had like hopes and desires and she wasn't just like a, you know, a trope for the series, which I think unfortunately Jolene was one of the weak points of the writing for me in both the book and in the series. Like it just seemed like it was a bit like tacked on like this, the acting was brilliant, but like she was just this like, um, you know, black character that was tacked on to help Beth whenever she needed her. And like, I would have liked to see even more development of like the person who stole the modern chess openings, you know? There was more to explore there. I mean, this is like the number one show ever on Netflix on, in terms of their original scripted series. What do you think captured the public imagination so much? It's not like, chess has been a great theme in TV or movies recently or, or ever. The glamour, the um, introspection at a time when we need it the most, hmm. you know, the, the, uh, the idea of just losing yourself. Oh, and one big thing, because Netflix international and it's been an international hit is the lack of dialogue. I mean, the dialogues that there is awesome. But there's actually not that much of it. There's a lot of just complete silence as chess moves are played or even like, you know, just beautifully edited scenes with like, you know, a lot of music and fashion and cinematography that doesn't have much words. And I think, you know, as somebody who sometimes watches things in other languages um, and doesn't, you know, listen to the dub versions always, like it's actually kind of nice to watch things that have some words, but not too many. Because then, you know, maybe I have a hope of kind of like understanding it and I can kind of relax a little bit and not be reading like constantly. So I wonder if that had something to do with it. And I think so. I wonder also just, it feels accessible. Like if you're watching a show about some world-class athlete, that might not be as accessible. Whereas chess feels like anybody could do it. You know, just like poker, just like rounders with poker, I feel. I feel this did for chess what rounders did for poker. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, it's just so huge that I think it could even potentially do more. Um, but you won't know for a while because, you know, it'll take some time for people to find out. Like, you know, 62 million people watched it apparently or households, which probably means 100 million. And so of that 100 million, like some are just going to have, you know, 
chest is cooler than I thought it was. It's beautiful. Um, but never think of it again. But there's going to be a sliver of that, you know, 100 million that will become obsessed with chess because of this series and never look back. And I think in five, 10 years, some, one of those people will win a tournament and they'll, they'll say, yeah, th- this is what it traces back to. And when you, were, when you were first starting out, did you experience a lot of, I mean, this is sort of a cliche question, but did you experience a lot of sexism and a lot of uh, uh, people upset at themselves when they lost to this little girl? Um, less than most people because of my strong support network. I did sometimes have, I think more than people upset that they lost to me because, you know, rating is such an indicative, um, indicative of your chest strength that like, I don't think people would be upset to lose to a 2200 girl. They might be upset to lose to a 1400 girl who's on her way up. Like there were like people who seemed to be more upset at that point. Um, But once I got good, people just seemed, um, you know, quite excited and, you know, mostly rooting for me. But the one thing that I think I, every girl who plays chess, the sexualization and the harassment, it's kind of impossible to totally avoid. So depending on, I think the personality type, there's some women and girls who are really good at just like shutting that stuff out or they have a really strong support network. So they just keep going. But there's some women and girls who don't, either don't have that support network or just are more sensitive. And like that can just shut them down. You know, somebody who just makes them uncomfortable, puts them in some uncomfortable situation, you know, asks them to analyze chess, but really just wants to ask them on a date. Um, For some people, that's just like, whatever. And for some people, it's like, okay, like, eh, not so sure about this game. And that's why I, yeah, I think that it, it would have been interesting to see Beth deal with a little bit more of conflict in that area uh, because I would have liked to see how that character dealt with it. Yeah, I guess she didn't really deal with it at all other than people resenting losing to her. She didn't deal with anybody harassing her. Yeah, a lot of people were interested in her, but if she wasn't interested in them, they were just seemed to be like, okay, you know, there weren't people like chasing her down when she like wasn't interested, um, which I think a lot of a lot of girls and women in the chess world probably get more of that than they should because there's such a there's such a skewed ratio, and also because people just need to be um, trained better and more respectful that you know it can make a woman uncomfortable to relentlessly hit on her if she's already shown that she's not interested even if she's just in an arena where it's more of a professional and competitive arena, not one where, you know, she's looking for a date. And, you know, we have plenty of parties and stuff in chess tournaments. So I'm not like saying like, I'm some like stodgy person who's like, yeah, a guy can never ask a chess girl out. But there are a lot of girls who like basically get asked out like when they're like walking to the board about to play a game. And like, that's like, you can wait for a better time, you know? Because if that woman is interested in that she will also go to the parties and the bars afterwards and you'll have an opportunity that's more appropriate, you know? And if she's not interested and she just goes to her room to study chess afterwards, then, hey, you know, that's what she's here for. And she's not interested in, in like, anything else right now. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they they were willing to pay for everything for me. So. I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. You were playing, you were winning the U.S. Women's Championship, you were writing books, and then you switched to poker. What made you kind of not go for more in chess? Do you feel like you could have gone for more? Yeah, I could have gone. I mean, I had two international master norms, so I definitely could have gotten like the international master title, I think. Um, why did I do other stuff? Just because I was more interested in new things. I felt like I kind of overperformed in terms of getting my two U.S. Women's Championships kind of early in life. And to me, that was like great because now I can like take those use those for my, you know, business and also engage in other intellectual activities rather than just like kind of trying to like narrow down and get a little, little, little bit better at chess, you know, because at some point you have to work really, really hard to just get a little bit better. And I was like, well, if I start playing poker, there's this whole world I can meet and I can learn about a totally new thing. And I, I think I got lucky in that respect, but you know, I did miss some of the things about the chess world, like the travel and the flow experience of playing like a really important classical chess game. But I didn't miss, you know, spending most of my time thinking about one very narrow subject. Well, you know, the great thing about chess also is it's a somewhat small subculture. So let's say you're traveling for an international mm -hmm. women's tournament. You're going to run into the same people. You're probably going to be friends with them over the decades. Yeah. It's neat, the subcultural aspect. And, and poker is so big. 
there's a little bit of that effect, but probably not the same effect. Yeah, but the thing is, even if you just, I've always stayed in the chess world as like, you know, a promoter and as a writer and a, a content creator and now a commentator. So I feel like I kind of get that, that like community of chess in my work and my life without like, you know, also like training all the time, thinking super, super hard about chess. Um, but I respect people who do. I think it's like, for me, like thinking about it really, really hard for 10 years was enough. But some people just keep doing that. And I think that that really works for some people because it's just this like rock for them and they can do other things in their life around it as they figure out a way to like support themselves. So I, I do appreciate the people who just keep doing chess. But for me, I think it was good to kind of move on for my brain. Yeah. I think also like maybe, do you think getting older, I, I mean, right now chess masters are getting younger and younger and younger. Some nine-year-old kid just became a chess master, which is like an incredibly hard level to get to for most people. And now there's nine-year-olds getting it. I feel like at a certain age, people just top out naturally. Like you can't, you know, is, is it something about being young, the memory is better, or maybe the tactical vision is better? I don't know. Well, I think the peak age is like late 20s or early 30s. So, you know, you don't peak that young, but I think that, uh, like, compared to other sports, and, like, still there's lots of amazing players who are almost at the top of their game um, from, you know, all the way through the 30s into the 40s, like, you know, Vishiana and, or Kramnik, Veselin Topolov stayed up there for ages. Um, so, yeah, I think that you can keep playing, but the world is structured where there's a lot of programs and activities for very young people. And so it's kind of natural that as people go through the different ages, they, um, you know, slip in and out of chess because there's just so many great tournaments for kids and then for teens and then even for college students. And then after that, there's like a big break until they have like big seniors events. That said, I think that it's important to kind of engage grownups because, it's like a community. And um, right now, especially, you are seeing that people are experiencing a lot of loneliness during the pandemic and like creating communities around activities like chess, I think is an elixir for that. Yeah. And like, you know, some of the names you mentioned, like Kramnik or, or Topolov or... Anan, yeah. Yeah. They, you know, what happens to them? They've, they, they reach world champion status. And then, you know, the young crew like Magnus Carlsen and all the all the young kids now competing for the world championship come through. What happens to these grandmasters who are in the top 10, top 20? How do they make a living afterwards? Well, th those guys are all so successful. I don't think they have to worry about it. I mean, especially because they've made so much money over the years. And then they're, they're so, like, I think those elite players are usually doing quite fine. And anything they, they consult on or write about or coach is always going to be um, charged at a very premium rate because they used to be a world champion. Um, yeah, sponsorships. Vladimir Kramnik just did some work for Google DeepMind um, with the AlphaZero project. I mean, like chess, it's like, it's, it's more secretive than some sports. Like we don't really know how much money people have, but we, we can be pretty sure that anybody who's been world champion before right now, especially with chess, you know, being so popular is doing really, really well. It's more than mid-tier people that struggle a lot, especially when they get too old to play, if that's their main bread and butter. Like people who are, you know, more in the 2,600 range or 2,500 range, not the 2,800 plus. Okay, let's take a guy like in the US, Joel Benjamin, someone like that, who's US champion, is big in the 80s, maybe early 90s. What happens to a player like that? Well, he, you know, he still just won a tournament, the US senior championship. Yeah, yeah. Invitational, and, um, I think he, he write, he's written a lot of books, which are, you know, widely acclaimed. The American Grandmaster, Liquidation in Chess. And then he also plays here and there. And then he, he coaches. And because he lives in like the New York area, that can be very lucrative for a former U.S. champion. Hmm. I mean, I there's a lot of parents out there who are like excited to, to, to learn from someone like that. And I, I think he believe, I believe he teaches it. Um, you know, a couple of places, including uh, Columbia Grammar, I think, but I could be wrong about that. But I know he um, is a very well-respected coach. So I think it's easier for people like that. Like Joel Benjamin is, I think, done very well for himself. And what do you do for your different streams of income? Like the, you're very good at like finding like a whole bunch of different streams of income. Like you're not relying on any one thing. 
Yeah, well, you've taught, definitely taught me that as well. Um, because I work, you know, I work, I have like my labor of love at the U.S. Chess Federation with like the women's program and, you know, bringing chess to girls and women. So that's something I do. It doesn't pay all of my bills, but it's exactly what I want to be doing. So it's nice that I'm making money at it at all. And then I am also, I'm an ambassador for Poker Stars. So um, that's, you know, helpful as I play in poker games. Not only can I make money from the game itself, but I make some money from, you know, speaking about the company and like doing interviews and, you know, creating content for them. So that's another one. And then I also have commentary for the St. Louis Chess Club. So we do commentary for major events. And then just like speaking gigs and things like that. Um, I love speaking to different groups of people, especially now that I can do it on Zoom. <laughs> it's so fun. Yeah. And I, I bet you like demand is up now because of uh, the Queen's Gambit. It is. It's really up. It's up and I, I love to see it. I enjoy doing that a lot. We're talking about, you know, whether it's talking about how you can learn from the first episode of the Queen's Gambit, how to be uh, a, a basic player, you know, to go from like knowing the rules to knowing some checkmates or just talking about negotiating and poker and how some of the things in poker can teach you how to be a better negotiator. I like speaking to people. So that's, that's always fun. And then of course, writing, I've done less of that ever since I've gotten into like kind of like commentary and podcasting, but in some ways besides chess, it's like my, my biggest love. So. You know, I, I have an idea for you based on you, you did this a series of podcasts where you were asking people their their favorite hand. Yes, yes. You should you should do a book, my favorite hand, and just compile all the transcripts. You know, edited, but compile all the transcripts of all the people you interviewed. Yeah, I think we want to do that. Kind of similar to like Tools of the Titans by Tim yeah. Ferriss, where we take out like all the best parts of the interviews and like you know compile it into a book. Yeah, that's a good benefit from podcasting. That even though I think from a financial point of view, to me at least, I mean, it hasn't really offered a lot of you know, opportunities, but it's really great networking tool. It's also really great for your sponsors because they love to see you getting out there and talking to cool people. And then it's great for creating content that you can later repurpose, right? I'm sure you've gotten a lot of writing ideas from your pods. Oh yeah. And I think, I think so many podcasters are missing out on the opportunity to just turn so many episodes into complete books. They're just not doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got to get on that. I, I, and my friend, Ben Johnson too, who we mentioned earlier, the perpetual pet podcast. Yeah. He definitely needs to do that. <laughs> yeah. He's got great interviews. Like yeah. he's, got, he's got a great chess podcast. Now, a lot of people in the past few weeks, obviously have been coming up to me and saying, well, how do I learn chess as quickly as possible? What do you, what do you say to people? What's, what's the recommendation? I think they should go to one of the sites or it depends whether they like learning on their computer or their phone. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. It's like, forget about like the chess set. It's like, you got two choices, your iPad or your phone or your desktop. And if you go on your desktop and you go to like leechess or chess.com, they've got like great tutorials. And then if you go on your iPad or your iPhone, you download like Play Magnus or Chess Kid. That's the other thing I'd warn people about. If you're a grown up and you want to learn chess, don't be afraid of kids' books or kids' tools. You know, just because it's like a, a talking, laughing pawn doesn't mean that you can't use it too. Yeah. And, um, but you know, it's interesting that you say go to the computer or the phone, because I feel like when I was a kid, chess books were beautiful. <laughs> like they were just designed beautiful. And, uh, and like you said earlier, you like taking out the board and playing through the games. Now that just doesn't happen anymore. I feel like there are no, I mean, there are chess books in the bookstore, but it's, it's people don't really get the books as much. They watch YouTube videos and then play games and right away. And it's not so much a, a, a book buying thing to learning chess. Well, I think that's a mistake at some point because when I think when you're learning the rules, I think it's like a practical thing that it's good to use a computer or an iPad because if you try to move your pawn somewhere that where you can't move it, it'll tell you. So right. it's just a very, it's a very elegant system for you to learn chess as opposed to like trying to learn it with one person on a board in pieces, especially in a pandemic when you can't easily hire a coach. But uh, afterwards, like once you reach a certain level, one of the great delights of chess is how well it pairs with books because of like the diagrams in a chess board and, you know, how you can kind of combine pictures and words to have like this, you know, luxurious reading experience. I mean, some of the oldest bestsellers were about chess. Well, what are your favorite older chess books? 
Oh, I'm talking about the ones like written around the time of the Bible. <laughs> I mean, the, the Gutenberg Bible. I'm talking about like that kind of stuff. But well, I like, uh, there was the, I like this classic, uh, but it's my first chess book was Paul Morphy's Games of Chess. And I, I don't remember the author now, but it was, I had a blue cover. In terms of like old books, like maybe a copy of my dad's books, uh, my 60 memorable games, definitely. Oh, yeah. um, I loved, I liked Wolverecki's books when I was a kid. I like tactics books of any kind. I would always like devour those tactics books. My dad taught me about that. And Rousen's books. I liked Endgame books. I was never very good at Endgames, like Endgame strategy. I So I, because I wasn't good at them, I liked to, to like read books about them. And I felt like it was a good learning curve for me. And my friend Irina Crush, who, you know, we talked about on my podcast, Ladies Night, is a, um, you know, she's a grandmaster and eight-time U.S. women's champion. And she tells me that when she does coaching with children, she often finds that people reach a plateau if they don't use books. Hmm. Isn't that funny? If they're just studying on the computer. Yeah, probably because they're not slowing down enough. That would be my guess. That's really interesting. There's something about the book that forces your brain to slow down a couple notches. I should probably take a break from the computer and just just look at books for a couple months. Yeah, or just a couple hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to devote my life to it now. Now that I've watched The Queen's Gambit, I'm going to go I'm going to become a professional chess player. It's all going to do. I wonder if anybody's making that decision like you said earlier. Maybe that maybe some kids are right now. They watch that and they they figure, "Oh, if it was her, it could be me too." Yeah. The thing is, how many parents are letting their kids watch that? Because I I teach a group of girls with my US Chess Women program. And uh, we had Gary Kasparov come in to talk about the series. And we showed a couple, you know, PG excerpts, obviously. They were the chess parts. And and when when I talked to the girls about whether their parents had let them see it, one of them um, said something hilarious. She was like, no, my parents don't let me see it. They watch it by themselves when I'm in my room doing homework. But then every time there's a chess part, they're like, they're like, come in, come in. You can watch, watch. Them. Oh my God. So it's like the inverse, right? Of like what normally. I feel bad. I let my daughters watch True Blood on HBO when they were little kids. So, so what, what other, I, when I was a kid, I, I read The Queen's Gambit. It was written in the early eighties, again, by Walter Tevis. What other chess books, fiction, anything that, uh, that you've been reading? I really liked, um, a couple of books, actually. They came out last year, which was horrible timing, but <laughs> bad coincidence, I guess. Um, one was called The Moves That Matter by Jonathan Rousen. It was kind of like this, philo- he's a philosopher and a grandmaster. Oh, yeah. So I, got, kinda, I got that book, yeah. I like that a lot, especially, it's kind of book that you just read parts of from time to time, similar to like The Tools of the Titans. Like, you don't read it in one sitting, you kind of yeah. like pick through it. And then there was another guy who wrote a book called All the Wrong Moves. That was a quick read. That sounds familiar. It was a memoir about uh, a writer who decided to just like spend a whole year um, traveling the chess circuit and playing chess. And he traveled all over the world doing this. And he wasn't a great player. Did he travel with a guy who was like a master and they went to... Um, the, St. The, Petersburg? The, or they went to the place where the chess city is. Pisa, yeah, the Elista. Uh, yeah. You're thinking of the chess artist, which is a lot older. Uh, that's like, that's a, that, that, that J.C. Hallman, though, he's a great writer, too. But that book's really old, like 15 years old or something, I think, or 10 years old. Oh, thanks for, for aging me there. Oh, no, no, that's, no. That's uh, an ancient book. I feel like I read it yesterday. Well, uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's had a resurgence because J.C. is also doing a lot of, like, mainstream writing. Um, but uh, it was a really beautiful book. It's just that the chess world has changed so much since then. Yeah. You know? And what about, what about fiction? You read the, the Defense by Vladimir Nabokov? Yeah, I did. I don't remember loving it though. I know that I loved, I loved the, you know, some of his other books, but I don't remember loving that one. I think that was one that he wrote in Russian, not English, right? Oh, I don't know, actually. Nonfiction, there's a lot. Like The Queen of Catway, that was a great movie. Didn't your brother like tutor her a little? Um, Greg did, I think online and I, she came to Philly once and I gave her a chess lesson and she spoke to the girls in the Philly, um, the Philly chess girls movement with ASAP. It was cool. She's, she was great, but she was shy at the time. Now she's been in America for many years. She goes to, um, a college, I think it's called, it's in Seattle area, um, Northwestern university or something. Does she still play chess? 
She does. She does. Not a ton, though. I think she's kind of more into like the college life and, you know, just uh, getting out there. But I, she's probably having a resurgence in her career after this uh, Queen's Gambit because it's actually a great movie, The Queen of Catway. It's a great movie. It didn't get enough attention. And, you know, one of the one of the only criticisms people are bringing against The Queen's Gambit is that there's not a ton of diversity in it, which may, and, you know, people say that's reflective of the chess world in the 1960s, which it was set. But, you know, it wasn't kind of a fantasy series as was. So they could have maybe thrown in a little more diversity anyway. But, um, you know, it kind of leads people naturally to some of these other movies like Queen of Catway and Brooklyn Castle, which um, do oh, show- Oh, I don't know Brooklyn Castle. What's that? I don't know Brooklyn Castle. Oh, you'd love that. That's a great movie. It's a documentary about IS-318, which is this like multi-national championship team in um, Brooklyn. And it's about like how they became this chess powerhouse. Were they masters? Um, some of them were. Um, most of them were more of like the expert level, but they won like, they were like the first junior high school team to ever win the national high school championship. So they basically like won a higher weight class, which is amazing. So what, what's, uh, what's next for you now in chess or poker or anything? What's the next, what's the next big thing you're going to try out? What is the next thing I'm going to try out? Well, those books that you told me to write. Those are, that's yes. such a great idea. I mean, and like, that's, I'm, that's what I've been missing really, like writing. I just wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post the other day. And even that, like, it's just an article, but it just feels so good to like, you know, force yourself to organize your thoughts on paper. What, what was it about? It was about myths in chess, like the five biggest myths of chess. What, can you tell us what they were? Yeah, well, some of them are, you know, going to be obvious after you've listened to this conversation or watched The Queen's Gambit. Um, one of them was that chess is not sexy. And I talked about how in the medieval times, chess was seen as synonymous with sex. And there was even a book called The Book of Erotic Chess. <laughs> like, yeah, this is, this is not a joke. That's like, it's like the opposite of the chess tournaments I went to as a kid. <laughs> And, you know, people, it was considered that, like, a chess game was, like, an allegory for, like, having sex because, you know, you couldn't show two people having sex. Maybe that would be considered pornographic. So, like, that's, like, a fascinating bit of chess history. And, uh, you know, when, when you see these, like, kind of, like, sexy scenes in chess movies or TV, it's like, hey, that, that goes back quite a long time. The other one was um, that I liked was that chess players see 20 moves ahead because I think one of the most important life lessons from chess actually is that you need to consider all your options and like try to look for different options. Like, you know, you have your theory of listing all the different things you can do, your idea list, like 10 ideas a day. Yeah. I love that because you're looking horizontally. You're like, what can I do now? What, what ideas are right there in front of me that I'm not considering? Whereas instead, sometimes people get tunnel vision and they're looking like 20 moves ahead in one plan. And that's just like we say in chess, long thing, wrong thing, right? Yeah, and it reminds me, I never thought of it this way, but it reminds me of Alexander Kodov's book, Think Like a Grandmaster, where he, he says breath first. Like, look at all your choices first before you go, start going down any one because some of the choices you could eliminate right away. Exactly, exactly. And you're just going to miss something right in front of you because if you look 20 moves ahead, invariably there's going to be something on move three that you didn't see and you just wasted all that time, which is very similar to the life axiom that um, man plans, God laughs. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So what's another myth? Another one I put, um, which was everybody's most favorite one, well, at least chess players, was uh, that it's a myth that the king is the most important piece in chess. The pawn is the most important piece in chess because without pawns, the game is just like a mess. It's mushy. And the pawns have the most kind of like interesting piece movement in a way because they capture differently than they move. They kind of create the bones of the game where all the other pieces play, you know, based on their, their structure. And I also found this very interesting because when AlphaZero, the artificial intelligence um, that was devised by Google a couple of years ago, uh, recently in an even more interesting experiment, this artificial intelligence was tasked to try different chess variants, right? So in some of them, stalemate was a win, not a draw. In some of them, you weren't allowed to castle. But most of them changed the movements of the pawn. Like they tried variants where alpha zero would play itself for like a week, but the pawns, instead of moving only forwards, would also be allowed to move sideways or backwards. Oh, I don't know. Or it's two squares at a time. And so they tested all these variants. And, 
the, uh, the, the small changes to the plot to me are so fascinating because it totally changes the game. Have you, um, have you read that book, uh, Analyzing AlphaZero's Games? It's very interesting. Yeah, I have. Game Changer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, great. It's a yeah, great think, book. And it was uh, like AlphaZero was very, was much more, uh, it was like a human aggressive player. It was like an extremely aggressive player, which I thought was interesting, as opposed to Stockfish, which is very, you can't figure out Stockfish's moves. Yeah, I found that fascinating. It's like, it, it sounded like they were thinking more like a poker player. It's very like, it was more probabilistic in a way than, you know, just just brute force kind of calculating a position based on, on like uh, pawns. For listeners, like normally when you're talking about a chess position with a computer, um, you know, you determine everything in pawns. So if I have a really good position, but we have the exact same pieces, the computer will tell me I'm up a pawn. But it's like, I'm not up a pawn. We have the same pieces. I just have this like great open file and my bishops are in better squares. So they're telling me I'm up like the equivalent of a pawn, right? Uh, whereas Alpha Zero um, communicated how it felt about positions totally differently. It started saying, well, I'm 80% to win this position, which I think is just like a way more human way to think about things, right? I asked Gary Kasparov if he had read the book and he's like, read the book. I, I wrote the forward to the book. I missed that he wrote the forward of that book and I had just read it. But, um, well, anyway, so thanks so much for talking about the Queen's Gambit with me. I've been wanting to talk with you about this since the show came out. Yeah, it's so fun. We'll have to play sometime online, but I'm, I, I, have to, I have to study a little bit more first. I want to catch up. I remember I was playing your brother Blitz once and he was like, he made some comment to me that... Um, it's like I, I knew nothing about strategy at all and I just had tactics or something like that. Like he, it was like playing someone who was a little kid but who knew the tactics. So he had, he had some kind of offhanded insult slash compliment. Sounds like a compliment. Yeah, you're, you play like such a young person. That's, that's definitely a compliment in chess, right? I don't know. He beat me every game. Although I remember playing him in a tournament in 1997 and it was a B4 Kings Indian and he, he crushed me. He's such a strong player. So and particularly good at blitz. He's like a, he's an absolute monster in blitz. So, and yeah. he, and he's, he, he must've really liked you if he was trash talking. I'll say that it's one of those things. Like somebody's only going to trash talk you if they actually think you're awesome. Well, what, uh, what openings do you play? I play E4 and the Sicilian. Kind of like Beth Harmon or she plays the Queen's Gambit on for white. Right. But, uh, she was playing the Sicilian in the beginning at least. Oh yeah, she did play the Sicilian though. She likes the Sicilian, but the Queen's Gambit is is not. I've never played that. Although, you know, after watching the series, I'm like a lot of my girls who are going to be coming up through the program are going to want to play the Queen's Gambit. So I feel like I have to learn it a little more now. I feel like with the with king pawn openings, you have to know too much opening theory, or or you have to take a step back and play very conservative. Like the London, yeah. Yeah, that's not very Beth Harmon-esque. She would not play the London, I don't think. It's like a system. She wants to go for something aggressive. The thing about the Queen's Gambit that people should understand, and Gary was actually talking about when he spoke to my girls' club room about his work on the series, is that it's like very specific, right? You, you push your pawn forward, they push yours, theirs, and then you, you sacrifice your pawn, right, with C4. Um, and actually, there's so many ways that it could go besides that, like the game you played against my brother with the King's Indian, um, the, the Grunfeld, there's a lot of different ways it could go. Uh, but I, I think that it's definitely an opening that we're going to see a lot more of because of the series. Yeah, it's probably true. Also, I think there's a rise of streamers now. You should, you should do streaming on Twitch of chess. I bet you would get like a huge audience. I did do some of that earlier in the pandemic. I enjoyed it, actually. I thought it, actually it was like, for me, it was like an addiction. I had to quit a little bit because I was just working. Like I have a four-year-old and I was doing all of my other work in the morning and then I would just stream every night and it's addictive. But the thing is, it, it really rewards the people who do it the most. You kind of have to like make it your main thing. I'll say Greg, your, your brother does, uh, has a great, uh, I watch his YouTube videos. I don't watch it on, I don't know if he does it on Twitch. I'm sure he does, but I watch the YouTube videos and, uh, Eric Rosen I've been watching lately. Yeah. He's a great guy. Very, very cool guy. Eric Rosen, not my brother. Nah, nah. <laughs> we must clarify <laughs> when okay. I said great guy, I meant Eric. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you gotta play mafia with us though yeah um, no definitely i want to i've i it, the only thing that stopped me actually is that lately i've gotten more addicted to playing chess online but that'll settle down i'm sure but uh in any case jen shahade 
author of Chess Bitch and Play Like a Girl, both books I highly recommend. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.